We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. You fired. You I'm fired. fired. Yo, guys. Fired. Yo, this is totally See, you my fired. <laughs> I didn't hit the button. Yeah, I thought I hit job. the button. I thought See, I hit it. That's how hot is that? That's how hot is that? One job, and that was to hit the button. And like we like five minutes late. Reef done did his introduction that was horrible, so he gets to do it again. But anyways, we have the national 2019 national teacher of the year tonight um, on our show, Mr. Rodney Robinson. And uh, Reef is going to introduce him. Reef, take it over, sir. First of all, secondly, I should say, um, we're grateful that Rodney came on the show um, earlier. Now, he tried to fix it now, you know. But he was looking like he was a hostage in a, in a dark room with a light above him, like he's being interrogated by the popo or something, you know, and Rodney came in to, to support that. But, you know, I've known Rodney for a couple of years now and, you know, I'm grateful that he's on the show. But what I had mentioned and what I feel um, that more educators need to do is that when they are given a platform, when they earn their platform or when they straight up take a platform, that they need to uh, really center the the marginalized, the, the people that they represent. And the fact that Rodney, as the National Teacher of the Year, has been doing that all year long, talking about educational justice, uh, you know, holding America's educational system accountable, holding the politicians and policymakers accountable and using his platform for good. Um, you know, like you, if you follow him on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else or, or his many, many speeches across the country, he was consistent from day one. And I'm, I'm proud of the fact that he was, uh, you know, that he was the teacher of the year and representing uh, so many of our, our thoughts and experiences. Um, and then secondly, Rodney worked as a, uh, you know, as a teacher in, in for children that have been arrested. And before I transferred into a traditional classroom, I worked at the Youth Study Center in Philadelphia, which was for children waiting to be adjudicated. And I, I didn't even make it through orientation, bro. Like it was it was like rough, like 12 year old suicide watches. Um, just being arrested in, in this lockdown space was like I was like when I left, I was like, you know what? They need the best people possible. They need the best educators that that um, we have to give. And I feel that that's what Rodney uh, represents. And I appreciate him being here. It's my pleasure to be here, man. It's my pleasure to finally catch up with you fellas, man. We've been trying to make it happen for a while, but... You're a busy bruh. You're a busy bruh, but it's all right. I'm here now. I'm here now. <laughs> yeah, that's all that matters. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's what's up. All right, so fellas, before we get started, let's check in, man. We do our wellness check. Um, Chris, how you doing? I'm not well. <laughs> ah, what's wrong, Chris? I try to be well. I'm not well. I'm trying. It's not working. But I love this tonight, so I don't want to take up a lot of space and time because we have a guest, a very special guest, my favorite types of guests, people who are actually doing the work that many of us talk about a lot. A lot of us are parents that want the best for our kids, and that's the reason why we do this. But the black educators, the black males who are re literally getting the job done are becoming my last hope. 
my very last hope when all the rest of the world is going nuts, relationships breaking up, politics breaking down. COVID is a it's it's it, it, it's it should be over. We canceling everything but COVID. We should cancel COVID. Right. We should put it on a list and, and cancel COVID because it's driving me crazy. To, to, to keep living the way that we live in. But anyways, all that said, I love my Sunday nights. I love hooking up with you brothers like this to have real conversations, but this is even better. We have an actual black male who has been teaching for 20 years, two decades or more, and is getting national attention for it. So that's how I am right now. This is, this is the best part of my week. That's what's up. Charles, how you doing, man? Checking in. Uh, it's been a week. Um, it's definitely been a week. Uh, similar energy as Chris, um, and I don't want to take up a bunch of space on it, but uh, if you want to hear those things uh, unedited and unfiltered, you might want to join the Patreon afterwards where I, I, got, a, I got a feeling it's going to get a little spicy in there. Um, but I lost some people. It will. Yeah, I lost some people that was very close to me. Uh, one, you know, one we knew about, but a few others was unexpected, and it was just a lot for the week. But I will say uh, the little powwow that I got to have with Ray and Chris even just before, uh, it was just I just I didn't do anything but laugh just now. And it was really good. It felt good because uh, you shouldn't be numb when things like, you know, death and, and, and all that stuff happen. So I appreciate you, brothers. And I'm looking forward to a good show. And if you are a Patreon, if you are a patron or a member of our Patreon, <laughs> you can be there afterwards. Uh, yeah. And if not, you got time to join right now. Because uh, I, I think it'll be worth your bread. Yo, hey, listen, that conversation would have been so dope if Reef was here, you know, to do the sound check and do all those things that we do prior to like coming on or whatever. But he wasn't. So, Reef, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, man. I, I actually, uh, I, I'm not even going to throw a wet blanket on you. I could very easily and shut this whole joint down, but I'm not. We have a guest. And so I, I appreciate, uh, you know, uh, Rodney being here and um, looking forward to the show. So, you know, I, I definitely, you know, every week is is rough, right? You know, um, but what I try to do every single day is try to find, you know, my joy, things that that inspire me, things that that give me energy to to carry through. Because no matter what I'm going through, as we've talked about, our ancestors it went through so much more, and so I just try to stay focused. And um, and I'm I'm glad to be here. That's what's up. All right. So before we jump into these questions for uh, for Mr. Robinson, if you are in these comments and you're feeling things, let us know what's pressing on your mind and your hearts and whatnot. Let us know so we could uh, we could check in on you. All right. So first question we got for uh, Mr. Robinson. What are your thoughts on the current Department of Education? Too soon? It's a mess. I'll just say that, you know, you know, just being nice about it. But it's really a mess. It's weird because before I was named, I actually got invited to the Department of Education to talk about youth um, prisons and how they could help out. And it was just, I mean, everything there is done for a show. You know, I was invited in, I spoke my piece met my people, but in the end, nobody listened, you know, and I've had several occasions with them like that. It's weird too, because I remember, <laughs> um, hell, I'm here now. It's just all right racist. I'm just going there. Okay, <laughs> I remember, mm. My first, my first account, the night of the um, teacher of the year gala, they introduced me to, uh, I think his name is Mike Gantz. He's the deputy secretary of education underneath Betsy DeVos. You know, they walked me up to him and they were like, Hey, you know, national teacher. I was like, "How you doing?" And he was like, 
So what are you going to speak about this year? I was like, well, I'm going to talk about cultural equity and education, talk about school-to-prison pipeline. The first words out of my man's mouth was, there's no such thing as the school-to-prison pipeline. See, the problem with you people. I was wow. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wow. I turned around and walked away. I was just like, I have no, no use for this conversation at this point. And this is the deputy secretary of education. Those were the first words out of his mouth to me the first night of my teacher of the year reign. So I was just like, I ain't gonna be doing much work with them this year. I'm just gonna say my piece and keep it moving. But you know, let me know immediately what you what you thought of us. You come out with new people, you, you know, people. the first time I meet you. And so it was just been a, a, a adversarial relationship with the Department of Education from the jump. So, you know. And right now we need a Department of Education, but, you know, she's, I don't know where she is, you know, she has not made one public appearance since this whole COVID thing started. So who knows? <laughs> she's somewhere on her yacht, maybe. <laughs> man, fellas, what are y'all thoughts, man? What are y'all, what are y'all's take on the uh, current Department of Ed? Reef, you work there. What's up, man? Listen, bro, when I worked there, it was very different. You know, the folks that were that were there, um, it was it was. Uh, and first of all, shout out to to many of the career folks who are there and they have to be there, um, you know, regardless of who's in the administration. They are they have projects that they're trying to do. And then certain projects just get put on hold because the new administration is there. And I met a ton of fantastic people who were career educators or career uh, members of the Department of Ed. Um, what you have on top of that is, you know, is layered with some other stuff. You know, um, you know, when I was there, John King, Arnie Duncan, Jim Shelton, a ton of other folks were, you know, were there doing this work. And when I think about um, the first time I met with DeVos, you know, I was invited to come to the Department of Ed. And I was used to like intellectuals coming with notes, questions, things like that. Yeah. Uh, Betsy walked in the room with not a pen or a pad, you know, uh, no questions, no, just nodded the whole time. And, and then I saw I was like, you know what, they're, they're not trying to hear. And, I, and years later, you know, Rodney saw the same thing, you know. But you know what she walked into that room with? She walked into that room with some privilege. And in a lot of circles, that's all you really need. Man, I don't so, even know if that's privilege. That's that's uh, you know, that's another whole level of 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 stuff. Privilege is what the white lady down the street got uh, from you know, like she she got something else. That's ignorance. She don't want to know. So you know, yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Mm. When I was supposed to speak at the ceremony. Down Department of Education saw my speech ahead of time and they was like, nah, you ain't saying that. I was about to say, they ripped that joint up. I'm sure they ripped that up. She came in like 30 minutes late, walked straight up to the podium, started reading off a piece of paper. So I was like, she don't know what's going on. So I asked her, could I speak? You know, and she was like, oh, sure, go ahead, say a few words. I pulled my speech out of my pocket. You can literally see the Secret Service agents backstage arguing about what they should do at that point. They wanted to tackle your behind. That's rookie mistake though, right? Either either don't give them an, or give them a dummy speech or whatever, right? And then go up and do your thing or whatever. But not, yeah. no. Especially no speech. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let's 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 jump to the next question. Um, next question is: uh, There's a running theory with limited data in the field to support or disprove kids won't work for people that they don't like. What are your thoughts? Um, it's common sense. 
You know, to me, if the kid don't like you, if you don't have that mutual level of respect with the kid, how can you expect the kid to want to learn? You know, we every day, we don't like, we, we work with people we don't like, and we know that it's just the basics to get through the relationship, to get through the day. So what makes you think that's going to be any different with a kid? If a kid don't like you, kid ain't going to do nothing for you. You know, and so, and quite honestly, the opposite of that. If teachers don't like the kids, they're not going to do anything for them. So it's about time we have to hold the teachers accountable for building that relationship as well. So it's, I mean, it's not a running, it's a theory, but it's, it's common sense to me in education. People don't learn from people they don't like. Yeah, but see, see, I'm glad that you said that. That is the answer and the rabbit hole that I wanted you to go down. Because there's a lot of people that do not feel the way that you feel at this point, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people that don't necessarily look like us that think that it doesn't matter if a kid likes them or not, the kid is still supposed to do what they're told. That's but, what I, but I don't I don't I don't fully agree with I mean I agree with the sentiment, right? But I, I would switch out like versus respect. Because I had a bunch of people that I didn't like, but I respected, right? So mm-hmm. I think that that's I think that's a key difference. I don't and, and there's a bunch of kids that like teachers that ain't good at teaching. So I want to also like just be very clear, right? Like I think like is a is a good to have if you can. But if I'm sending my kids somewhere, I'm sending somebody that I love somewhere, I want to know that the person is competent and respects my child and respects the people that I care about. Uh, but I, I get the point. I just like because I can see if somebody if you said like like to a different group of people, I can be like, no, nah, I don't I don't give a damn. Like, I don't think great teachers care if you like them, per se. I think they're like, no, nah, this I'm good at what I do. I want to know who you are mm-hmm. and I'm going to do my job. My job is not to be liked by you. Mm-hmm. My job is to infuse wisdom into you and for me to also learn from you or whatever so I can be better for other people. So, like, I don't think I disagree with what you just said, Rodney. I just, you know. I feel you on that. I've had teachers before that I didn't like, but I respected them. So I understand exactly where you're coming from on that. Yeah, but if it's a two for two and you don't like them and you don't respect them, you ain't learning nothing. Wait a second now. Wait a second now. What's up? I mean, I've learned from people I don't respect or don't like. I learn from enemies all the time. I was about to say. So what you like? Basis. And I will say this. And I will say this. It's not a question. It's it's, like we give our our children in some case because the world's just going to be the world we're going to be. We got three million teachers right now. A good number of them. I'm not going to say how many. A good number of them are not going to be prepared anytime soon for the kids coming in our classrooms. Right. We got eight million black children that need to get an education. This is the math that we're working with right now. If it is going to require us for any day now for all of these teachers to suddenly find their diversity Jesus and like get better at their craft of like making the kids like them and respect them or any of that stuff we're just doomed so so like the idea that I sent I sent my what I want teachers to be right now is competent who I want teachers who can teach and the fact of the matter is we biggest inside secret that teachers themselves should admit but won't admit what the public is is that there's too many of them that have no damn business being in a classroom right now Um, yeah and it's not because they, they're unliked, because many of them are likable. Many of them are sympathetic, likable people who, if you you met them in any other context, you would have no problem with them. They can't teach in a lot of cases. And and this is the here's my problem with all this. I want teachers who who get the respect from the, their students and who who are liked by their students. That would be great. But at the end of the day, I don't want a teacher listening to this or reading a book this weekend, like came up in one of my other conversations and thinking that they can make the kids like them next week. And that's going to make them better teachers and that that all, you know, all 
academics are just going to break out after that next week because I don't know that that happens. I just, I just have never seen anybody get good at that real fast and have that be the reason why they have learned to teach. That's why uh, there's so well. limited amounts of research in the field on that. But like, no, I'm not saying it's a I'm nice so, to have. Just, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's nice yeah. To have. Brief, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think one, a lot of what we're describing as far as like, you know, learning, we have to, you know, understand the, the, the black child that's being subjected to oppressive messages uh, throughout this country. They flick on the TV, they ride by a billboard, they, they, anything, they catch a little bit of AM, PM radio in their parents' car. They're going to hear a whole lot of anti-blackness. And so I, I think it is absolutely imperative that the teachers in front of the classroom are not only uh, competent, as far as pedagogy, but they have a deeper understanding of, you know, the children that they are serving, the communities that they're serving. And they need to have a level of competence with that, because if not, the, the undermining that they can do to the black child's psyche, there may be no coming back from that without intense interventions, either by somebody else or whether their own child when they get become older and realize that the damage that was done. So we're always talking about like praxis this, praxis that. There is no praxis for how you view the humanity of that black or brown child in front of you. And so I, I think we have to be absolutely vigilant, but it doesn't just start with those 3 million teachers. I wanna say it starts with whoever says they're preparing them. So what teacher colleges are doing and the amount of anti-blackness in these teacher colleges is, you know, that lays the foundation for all the rest of the madness. Um, I, but. I, got, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with what you said, Reef. I just want to make sure we talk about the same thing. Right. Like I because I agree with everything you said. I, I think I'm I'm really focused on what the question was and like in that question around life. You're trying to say I'm not. Uh, <laughs> yo, yo, yo. Start early. Yo, it's not the energy that I'm on. It's, it's not I'm, the energy I'm, that I'm on tonight. Yeah, no, I'm, but, but I, because I think we got to be really clear about this, though, right? And I think we, you know, and Ronnie, having 20 years of becoming a national teacher of the year, I love to hear his thoughts on how he, you know, made a better environment in his classroom. I think kids should definitely be respected, and like all those things you said are absolutely true. But when we talk about like, like was the issue. Like my mother didn't understand how schools worked, right? Like she didn't understand what a good classroom was. So the question she'd asked me when I came home was, did you did you like your teacher? Did you learn something or whatnot? Like she didn't know that teachers were supposed to have a plan for like the semester or quarter. She didn't know how to assess a classroom. She just cared around if I was if I liked my teacher. And some of them I liked and some of them I didn't. But also in my school, less than 10%, 20% of kids were proficient, right? Like, so I think that the issue of life and also like is not a realistic thing that you can go into the real world kind of thinking about and talking about, right? Like, I think that there are a lot of young people right now that's entering workforces and like, well, I don't like my job because I don't like my boss. And it's like, well, it's been a whole bunch of people for a long time that didn't like their bosses and still had to do what they needed to do. I agree with everything that you said. I think maybe I'm just stuck on the term like. That's why when we say respect, because I think being a good educator encompasses all that stuff that you just said. I think that's what respect encompasses. I don't think that's what like encompasses. But so I, hear you. I, and I didn't use the word like. What, I, I tried what? to answer it in a different way. I didn't use the word like at all. I don't but, but even even still, even still, Charles, what did he what what did you say just now that was different from what you said the first time? I'm saying I'm trying to understand the question that Sharif was answering because I feel like we answered a different question. I strictly answered the question of like He's talking about like anti-blackness and a bigger thing. I mean, that's a good answer. But the question was, if kids don't like you, can they learn basically? 
Charles, I'm moving That's on to the next question. question. Wrote. All right. Wait, 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 wait. So, Hold on, wait a second. Wait, we didn't. First off, we didn't let Rodney talk about and build on that piece. But secondly, don't you ask me a question? You wrote the question. I'm answering the question you wrote. Yeah, you answered the question twice. So, Rodney, we need some classroom management right now, bro. Rodney, give us some classroom management, bro. We're about to suspend some folks. It boils down to just a combination of what you said, like and respect. You know, it has to go hand in hand because I had teachers in high school who I love. But looking back at those teachers, they were very damaging to me. They were very damaging to my psyche, to my academic ability. You know, now that I'm older and I can see that. When I think back to when I was a teenager, I liked these teachers. I went to that class. I had a good time. But when I went to college day one and I got thrown into these classes, I'm like, hold up. He didn't prepare me for this class. Mm -hmm. And so I do think the word like requires a little more explanation than just saying you like. But when it comes to respect, I think teachers have to respect the children. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I work with a lot of teachers over the years that plain and simply did not respect the schools, did not respect the kids, did not respect the community. And those people have to go. We don't need them in education. No, yeah. no, no doubt. This, no this doubt. Is the I part, mean, this we've talked about this. Say, oh, go ahead. This is the part where we say two things can be true, right? Because that's always going to be said in some conversation somewhere. It can mm-hmm. be true that we do need teachers to be respectful and to be liked, and we need them to understand pedagogy and how to teach. It's yeah. There's no either or. This ain't a menu where you get to pick one or the other and <laughs> let one of them fall off because there are a lot of very woke teachers who are very likable and liked by their students. In fact, students will tell you, Miss So-and-so is my favorite. And there's a chance that Miss So-and-so either is really good at teaching also, in addition to being my favorite, or she just lets us do what we want to do for 45 minutes. And that's why we like her a lot and ain't nobody getting anything done. It could be any of those things. So like, respect, and can teach is probably the best situation for us. And we ain't nowhere near that. That's not not coming anytime soon. (laughs) Nowhere near. (laughs) I ain't nowhere that. So next question, Rodney. Um, How important is school culture to establishing the type of classroom culture you aim to have during the year? It's the most important thing. You gotta set. You gotta set the standard that this is learning. This is what's, what's going to go down in this room is learning. And so, if you establish a culture of learning, then the students will buy in. For example, when I first got to the to the jail, you know, and it's a jail. They use detention center, all that, but it's a jail, you know. And I walked in the first day. All I saw was white walls, nothing up, just straight institution. And so that bothered me. So one, one thing we did was we just made it look like a school. You know, we put up we put up banners, we put up posters, but it was just about creating a culture of a mindset of learning, just so the students understand when they came, when they came over here, this was school. This is an environment. We have expectations for you. And reality is a lot of our students are there because they've never had a good experience with school. When they walk into my classroom, I'm asking them about their past experiences in school, past teachers they had. Um, what what did, what, did they, what did you learn? And reality is a lot of them say nothing. You know, that's why they, you know, skipped class. That's why they did everything they did. I was like, well, I just want you to know that I ain't going down here. You know, this is the learner-centered environment. What do you want to learn? What do you want to do? And reality is we had, at, in jail in Virginia, there's no oversight. <laughs> there was no oversight whatsoever of jail schools. And so people were just sitting there like, don't get us sued. Uh, don't have the kids fighting all day. And so those were the two things I was told when I walked into the job. And so I was like, well, since nobody's 
looking over our shoulder on pacing charts and all this and all that, we can now create an environment that benefits our kids. You know, so our principal came in and said, hey, let's do what works for our kids. You all are veterans on this staff. You don't have to worry about lesson plans. You don't have to worry about this. Do what works for kids. And so we all just started to do what we thought worked for our kids. And then the other things just happened. They started to become competent enough to pass state tests. They started exceeding. We had kids going to college. We had kids, you know, graduating who had the first in their family. And so because we had that culture of, this is a culture of learning here. Even though this is a jail, this is a culture where we're going to learn. And that's the one thing that nobody can take away from you is your education. And that education is the one thing that can really truly free you in this world. And so once the kids buy into that, then, I mean, learn anything is possible. You know, hate to use that such a blanket term, but once they buy into that culture, man, you can just do whatever you want that benefits them and they'll, and they'll go with Sweet. Reef, swinging into you, bro. As a school leader, like, what were your thoughts on setting the, setting the tone for school culture and, like, how it looked different in different classrooms? Yeah, I mean, listen, as Rodney said, it's the foundation for any learning that's going to take place. You know, part of your culture is not only how students are going to be received, how they're going to be accepted, but also how they're going to be challenged, uh, how they're going to be held accountable, but how the adults in the building are going to hold themselves accountable. And you can almost sniff the culture as soon as you walk into the doors and see like our students experiences, uh, you know, relevant. Are they supported? How are parents greeted and respected and valued as partners? Like all of that is like it's the intangibles, but it's also the very concrete things that you'll you'll see. And, you know, we talk about this and uh, not to get back on the, the previous question, but, you know, this whole idea of, oh, I love the kids. I love the kids. You know, some people are showing up to schools because, oh, I think kids are cute and I'm showing up. You know, that doesn't mean that kids are going to be learning. And I've seen people so-called love their kids, the mediocrity where the kids don't learn jack, but, you know, they feel loved. And, and the kids are intuitive. They will say like, yeah, we used to be able to goof off in that classroom. But that teacher over there who held me accountable, who had a high bar, who had high expectations, that's the one that actually taught me. Hmm. Right. And so there's a very big difference. Right. And and so when I look at my own experience as, as a child, a uh, 10th grader in literature class, I remember cutting that class for weeks just because I felt like it was more learning in my mom's library than it was in that classroom. I would see that teacher in the hallway passing by and she would just kind of look the other way. No accountability, no like, yo, bro, where you been? Why haven't you been to class? Nothing. Right. And so those are those are the kind of messages. That was an extreme case where I just wasn't going to the class. But there's there, kids get those same messages inside the classroom while people are so-called teaching, too. So the culture is everything. It, it says what you expect out of that child. Bro, so that's the same 10th grade Overbrook High School? It is Overbrook High School. And so that's where you learn how to be nonchalant and not care about nothing. We know people that went there that don't care about nothing either. But anyway. Um, <laughs> you coming for the Brook? For real? <laughs> I'm coming for Will Smith. Hey, uh, Chris, what's your thoughts, man? As a parent, when you walk in and you see the culture of a school, man, what does it tell you? <clears throat> I mean, I, I don't think people put enough uh, uh, enough of a premium on how much parents get a gut feeling about a place when they mm -hmm. come in and, mm -hmm. and they see things. And they don't always tell you while they're right. there what it is right. that they see. But they do go home with feelings sometimes that you don't you're not going to capture and you don't know. And um, when you go in and you see a strong teacher who is strong about his or her business and a strong principal that's about her, his business. 
it gives you a sense that you can like exhale a little bit and you can breathe and just go to work and drop your kid off or have your kid go to that school. Uh, um, but too often you're getting a sense that you don't even know what's wrong, but something feels a little off or wrong. We've had shows here where we've talked about how parents should deal with teachers when they cry, for instance, like, cause you know, as a man, as a black man, you sitting in a room with a white woman at a thing, you know, and they're talking about your child, like maybe a, you know, one of those, the, the, the parent teacher meetings that you go to or whatnot and somebody cries and, and you're like, what, what the hell am I supposed to do with this shit? Right? Like, like, like there, nobody wrote the manual. All, the, the stuff that is said about education and the books that are written about it or whatnot are aimed at college educated parents. They're not aimed at parents that are working class, working regular jobs, come in those buildings. A lot of things feel foreign. We're doing our best when we get there. Many of us have had a bad, bad, bad situation ourselves in those schools, but we're having to renew our hope in them because we have children now and we're depositing our children with you. So when I encounter a situation like what Roddy just told me, I like to set a culture in my classroom. I like to let people know what we, there's going to be some learning that's going to take place in here. And there's something don't believe, don't, don't feel like parents don't see that or feel that when they come in a classroom like that versus when they come in another. And I got multiples. So you get to start comparing classrooms too. Same school, different classroom, different teachers. And it's really good when you find a one, like what Rodney said, it's really good when you just feel like, oh, okay, you got this. Good. Thank you, Jesus. Just let me move on to this other class because it's a hot mess over here. Right. Um, but parents know. Parents aren't stupid. They, parents aren't nearly as, as undereducated as people think they are. Man, yeah. I saw this one join from The Wire, this one clip where the this guy was walking by the classroom. We saw one, kids are like diligent, like learning, absorbing all this stuff. It's like this beautiful ecosystem. And the next one, it was just like chaos. I was like, you know what? That's whoever wrote that, they, they've been in these schools. <laughs> Same so school. Charles, Charles, man, you yeah. work energy, energy converters. That's your company. And you're in touch with young people all the time. How are these young people activating their agency when they talk about school culture to you? Do they, what are they saying? Can't hear you. You're muted. One, one of the yeah. things we talk about is um, it, it's just like a culture where the school actually believes they can learn um, and teaching them things that's relevant to their life. Um, so, you know, if you if, if like we got kids and energy converters that's getting like really, really good grades. Right. And then they're starting to see what actual grade level work looks like in other schools because we show it to them and then they get offended. Right. So mm. you, know, you can be as nice or as sweet to me as you want. But if you don't really believe that I'm actually worthy and can learn and that you want to push, um, then, you know, that, and, and unfortunately that's the, that's the culture that a lot of our kids are in, especially where I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. So culture is extremely important, man, because like you, like, like all you fellas said, when you walk into a school, you know exactly what's going on from the moment that you hit the door. It's like, you know, if learning is taking place by walking through the hallways or whatever. And then when you peep into the classrooms, then that's, that's like, that's, that's additional. But I think, Learning starts first with a culture that is safe for kids, that allows for kids to thrive. But if you don't have that safety piece in place first, then there's very little learning that's going to happen. And so next question, Rodney, this is hitting right right for you, baby. Uh, how do you take kids from detention to the honor roll, man? Uh, show them that it's possible. You yes. know, the reality is so many of them have never been shown that this is what they could do. You know, and so... Well, we we actually had our first honor roll assembly at school. I mean, kids were in tears, man. They've never experienced mm -hmm. that sort of positivity in their life. 
You know, they come, they come in and everything to them from a school point of view has been negative. Everything has told them what they can't do. But when you actually show them what they can do and actually elevate them along the way, that's a whole different feeling the kid gets. Once they get that feeling, there's like, okay, I got honor roll, you know, college is possible. You know, my dreams are possible. Entrepreneurship is possible. You have to show them a good feeling. I'm not exaggerating when I say 99.9% of the kids that come into juvenile detention have had horrible experiences with school. And that's where it all starts. And so you have to set the example and let them know, look, man, I know you'd have been through it, you know, because if you hadn't been through it, you wouldn't be here. But the reality is, this is what you can do. This is your moment to take advantage of your temporary setback. I say a setback ain't nothing but a setup for a come up because you can actually do some good things here. You know, this is your opportunity. Here's the thing. The grades you get here, can't nobody take that away from you. When you go back to your school, they have to honor you as being on honor roll. And so that's a whole new mindset. So they go out with a little more confidence of what they can do. And the reality is some of them hold their teachers accountable because they'll say, hey, we did this down at jail. You know, your class, your class is worse than the jail. You know, and, you know, kid, our kids, they're going to speak on stuff when they see stuff like that. And so to me, that's a that's a that's that's a compliment to what we're doing at the jail. When those kids go out and this teacher tell me my kid talking about they did this at the jail. We behind and this and that. But that's that holding that <laughs> accountability piece and just yeah. saying these are the expectations we have here. This is what you're going to do. And when you leave, take this with you and hold your other people accountable. I'm a big believer in you have a voice. You know, now keep in mind, a lot of my kids come from situations where they don't know how to properly express that, you know? So we have to teach them that self-control to say, hey, this ain't right, rather than cursing and, you know, the stuff that they used to doing on the streets. So we just try to change that mindset and teach them how to advocate for themselves when they leave us. And for some, and for a lot of mistakes, you know, they're able to advocate for themselves not only you know, when they go back to school, but they able to advocate them for themselves when they go to court with their probation officers. And it's all about self-advocacy, teaching them how to go about the right way of doing things because most of them have never seen it before. And so you just got to have patience with them. I got yeah. a question for you um, on this that you're talking about right now, because I don't want to lose this point. You are talking about the possibility of children, even in really desperate circumstances, still being able to succeed. Yeah. Right? And this hits on something that I, 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 like hurt internally about all the time, which is the belief gap, knowing that we have so many kids in schools that are capable of so much more than the people, the adults around them think they're capable of. I want to ask you about the national narrative, whether you think it's fair. First of all, my analysis around the national teacher, um, the national teacher narrative that I hear often about black children and very much about black boys is a deficit based, demeaning, um, um, trauma based um, narrative almost in total. And, And most of the solutions for that are not educational solutions, they're sociological ones, right? So our kids are talked about in ways that other kids aren't talked about. And if you listen to it enough, you start wanting to hear the achievement gospel. You start wanting to hear from people like you who say, no, it can be done. No, 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 like these kids are can succeed. Nobody's lost, everybody's redeemable. Is it fair, first of all, for me as a parent, as a person naturally listens to teachers to think that's the narrative that I hear though from teachers and from the profession about our kids? Uh, no, because a lot of people think that they believe that they believe that, you know, black kids cannot. 
I mean, a lot of people believe that black people can't do anything. And so they often, every time they talk about black people, it's going to be from a deficit mindset. It's going to say what they can do rather than putting the tools in place and allowing them to be what they can be. And so that's really just a national narrative when it comes to black people. Hell, I have people tell me as teacher of the year that I couldn't teach, that I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Every day, I mean, you finish a speech and you give advice to the people, then people walk immediately up to you after the speech and contradict you. Like, I don't have 20 years of experience and two degrees in my back pocket. Like, I'm just on stage making shit up. Oh, no. That's not just white people. That's black people, too. Wow. A lot of black people are coming up to me after I speak. And, more black people than white people. Yeah, saying the same thing. And so it's like, <laughs> wow. It's a deficit mindset when it comes to black people in general. And so people think that black people can't do. And so I spend a lot of my time as teacher of the year talking about what black kids can do, but also what I can do as black teacher of the year. You know, I'm, I'm more than just a teacher at a detention center. I can go to any school in this United States and teach a kid, but can you come into my jail and teach my kids? See, this is what I want to hear. This is what I want to hear teachers say right now. I can go to any school in America and teach kids. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Put that on a teacher. No, no, no. But but the second part, the second when I used to teach the second part is more powerful. When you're like, yo, can you come to my school? Yeah. Mm. When I used to teach AP courses, you know, I worked at, you know, Armstrong High School in Richmond, Virginia. That's just one of those schools that's economically, racially segregated from the rest of the city. But when I used to go to those AP trainers, I had teachers from the other side of town, teachers from the most elite schools in Virginia asking me and my colleagues, what are we doing to get good scores? How do we um, relate to our kids? And so that right there, let me know, look, y'all not doing anything. Y'all just got kids that come from homes that are prepared to learn. Mm, Y'all are just sitting up in front of a classroom taking attendance every day. You know, where I've come from, we got to teach our kids Mm -hmm. because our kids have been deprived of this their entire career. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. when I go into those meetings, ask those questions, I mean, I I feed the answer, but at the same time, I'm going to let them know that you are coming to me for this, right? I just want to put that into your place because Mm -hmm. you have this negative opinion of our teachers, of us, but you're coming to me for advice on what I can do to help you do with your students. So, you know, I mean, you play humble, right, so, but you gotta have that confidence in it. All right, so real quick, we gotta get to this next question because if we don't, Miss Toya's gonna kill me. And so Miss Toya, shout out to you, make some noise in that audience. Uh, but she wanted to ask this question about what role does the parent play in educating the child? And so that's a question that we all can answer, but uh, we'll start with, uh, we'll start with Reef. We'll start Philadelphia, Overbrook. West Philly. That's right. Respect, bro. Respect. Put some respect on that name. Now, listen, I, I think parents are, are partners. They're the first teachers. They're partners. Many of them are overwhelmed. Uh, many of them uh, do not have choices as far as where they send their children. Um, and it's up to the school, the adults who are actually signed up and being paid to make sure that they are uh, holding themselves accountable, that they're asking parents instead of just telling the school, telling the kids and, and the parents, these are the rules and this is what we expect. They should be saying, like, what are your aspirations for your child and hold us accountable? How do you want to be communicated with? You know, a couple of years ago, Cole wrote uh, some a great piece about like what parents should, you know, arm themselves with when they come into a school as far as like, you know, a report card conference or something, you know, um, 
parents should be part of, uh, you know, like just the fabric of a school. Right. Like, you know, we I think one of y'all posted before, like if they had the grandma brigade or whatever, you know, like that parents are just part of it. Like our, our parents at, at Shoemaker felt like they they owned the school. And you know what? They did. <laughs> and that's that's how, uh, you know, school should be looked at. Like it belongs to the parents and they just hired you to work there. And damn it, you better do a good job. Right. And, and that you're accountable. But nobody should hold you more accountable than you hold yourself when you're working with uh, other people's children. Mm-hmm. We'll segue to Charles. Charles, you wrote that powerful piece. You want to talk a little bit about it? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was just basically five questions. I mean, I think that a lot of parents get intimidated when they go into these schools, and these schools don't make our parents feel welcome, and it don't make them feel respected. So, um, you know, one of the things that we said that you should always ask is get very clear and ask your ask your kid's teacher, like, what do they see in your kid? Because if you can't even like see a positive future that has my kid in it, one, my kid needs to be about your class. Mm-hmm. Ask about policies, man. Ask them like, what's your discipline policy? Ask them about their grading policy. Like ask them, you know, one of the biggest things that was that was hard for our families is that and they should have been upset about this, is that there isn't a connection between the actual grade a kid receives and how well they actually know the subject that they're supposed to be knowing and proficiency. And you know, so we have parents that say, well, my kid got an A in English. How are they at a fifth grade reading level when it's a ninth grade class? Well, those two things are not always connected. Right. And so as a parent, you got to like go in there. They're going to try to call you loud. They're going to say that you didn't talk to them the right way. It's going to be a whole bunch of stuff, man. But you the expert on your child. That's your baby. And you got to live with the consequences, regardless of who's in that school. Uh, so those are just some of the questions that I would bring up when I talk to when I when I help coach parents around going into schools. All right, Chris, we're going to jump to you and then Roddy, we'll come to you. I mean, what's the question you're asking me, brother? What role do parents play in educating the child? (laughs) (laughs) Question that's on the screen. (laughs) What role do parents play in educating the child? (laughs) Listen, man, you know, everybody says the, the, the thing, you know, parents are the first teachers of their kids. Okay. So this is true. We are the first teachers we have, we're there at day one with them and we're going to be there with them, you know, God willing and and God bless us. If we can, we're going to be with the children all the way year by year by year by year year and teachers going to have those those kids on loan for one year of that child's life we're going to be with them in all the subsequent years afterwards so really we are the president of our child's education as parents Mm. we are the ones who actually should be determining the most and there should be something very close to parental sovereignty around our decision making about what we want for our kids but we have to earn that in some ways by number one knowing our role number two accepting our responsibilities and number three um, making sure that we always fight for our rights those are my three r's as a parent right we got to know our role and our role is that we are ruthless for our children so when we encounter these systems these teachers wouldn't all this nonsense about we don't feel comfortable at the school or whatnot well if you don't feel comfortable at the school take your child out of it because that will never be an excuse for not showing up there to to take some names and whoop some asses around what needs to happen for your children right um and our responsibilities are to keep following up on everything it's the homework getting done the papers being signed are the things happening and then rights because these schools are going to try and take your rights from you constantly it's what they do and you're going to need to take your rights back and fight for your rights because this is the only way this is the black manifesto for the parents is the only way your child's going to win in a system that was not designed for your child right 
I say all this just as a setup to say that the homeschool relationship, the parent teacher relationship, I think I've been talking about it for a long time as being broken. It is broken. It needs fixing or you need to pull your child out of a school. If you cannot have that homeschool relationship, that parent-teacher relationship that makes you know with perfect confidence that your child is being well taken care of and have a plan. That's the last thing I'm going to say. What's the role of a parent? Have a plan. My perfect world, a parent on day one would have a plan for what they wanted to see for their child's education. And when they would meet with the teacher at the beginning of every year, they would say, this is what my son is like. This is what my daughter is like. This is what we, as a family, these are our values. This is what we care about. And this is what you and I are going to be agreeing on for, for the year. That's the role to me of a parent. And how a teacher receives that, uh, Rodney, you can tell me how that's received. Like, you know, I'm talking from my perspective. So I'm coming to see you and that's what I'm coming to you with, right? And let's have a talk at the beginning of the year. Yeah, and that's honestly for me, that's my role as a teacher, you know, because you got to understand your parent, parents are giving you their most prized possession. You know, they know everything about their kid. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not, you know, talking to that parent about what's best for that child, then you're dropping the ball. You know, what I mean, if you're not your first communication to a parent should always be a positive communication should always be. Hey, you know, how does your kid learn? What has worked for them in the past? What has been their best classes in the past? Who have they had their best relationships with? You need to have those conversations with parents as soon as school starts. Mm-hmm. And I'll go a step further and say those conversations should already exist because if you're a true community educator, you should be in that community. You should know those parents that come into you. You should know if such and such has a little brother or sister coming your way, you know, because that that's what being a community-involved teacher is. is you know the community. The community knows you. And so that way, that way, if there's an issue, there's not that adversarial, I don't know you type thing to get over when we have an issue. You know, if you're calling the parent to say, hey, your kid's failing my class and this is the end of the grading period, well, what has happened that whole grading period that that communication has never taken place? So you always have to keep that open line. And to me, I think it's more so on the teacher because good pedagogy says, hey, I'm reaching out to my kid, to my parents first, and I'm getting to know them and getting to know the kid by through the parent. And that's what it's all about, because you got to empower the parents, because the last thing you want is that parent showing up, you know, ready to, you know, basically somebody Vaseline up, ready to go for their kid. You don't want that situation. You know, and I've been in such schools where I've had to stop that parent at the door because I know they're going after another teacher. You know, so Why'd you, you stop them. To... Why'd you stop them? <laughs> <laughs> Some things ain't a fair fight, man. Some things ain't a fair fight. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> you know, but... uh, sometimes you sometimes you earn that ass when you messing with people's kids. And so, yeah. you know, my take on it, my take on it is this, right? So, you know, we when we look at when we looked at, at the whole construct of the relationship between education and parents is looked at, and I've said this before on the show, it's looked at through a middle class lens. And so in order for black parents to be successful, in order for black students to be successful, we got to meet them where they are. And so, you know, we, we have to format our thinking to know that these parents are working two or three jobs to stay over the levels of poverty. So if I'm working two or three jobs, the last thing that I'm thinking about is coming to your goddamn teach parent teacher conference. I'm not thinking about that. Right. That doesn't mean that I don't love my child. I, of course, I love my child, which is why I'm working three jobs in order to keep food on the plate. And so, you know, when we got 80 percent of teachers and I'm not going to say it's all of them, but when we got a high percentage of teachers that are looking down their noses 
at our families because we don't do things the way that they do things, then that becomes problematic in education ad hoc. That's where I'm at. That's my energy. So next question, Rodney, starting with you. Uh, how do you form positive and sustainable relationships with parents and families, bro? Once again, it goes back to that community aspect. You know, they have to see you outside of school. And one thing we talked about is you said people are working to put food on the table and can't get to the school. But what is the school doing to get to the parent? Are you going to community centers? Are you going to the boys and girls clubs? Are you in those neighborhoods looking to meet with those parents? You know, because it's not we put far too much onus on the parents to come to our schools. Like you said, parents are struggling. You know, we, I know in our district, we get six hours of parent-teacher conferences. Six, six straight hours of parent-teacher conferences. That is more than enough time to reach out to all your parents. You know, and if you truly have a good relationship with your parents, you know who's working. You know who's, you know, at home. You know who's struggling with certain things. And so you have to meet, like you said, meet the parents where they are. Far too many times we hold events at school and say, oh, the parents didn't show up. Well, guess what? You traumatized that parent 20 years ago. That parent don't want to take a step foot back into that building. So you have to go into those neighborhoods. Right, you better say it. You better say it. You better say it. But I'm serious. You got to go into the neighborhoods <laughs> and meet those parents, you know, because they, they don't know. All they know is they want what's best for their kid. And so as long as you keep that open line of communication, you know, one thing I always pride myself on at, at Armstrong was, you know, my one of my old high schools that, Parents would reckon they would tell their kids, you're not getting out of his class, you know, because they knew that I taught the older brother, that I taught the sister, that I taught the cuz. And even down at the jail, when the kids come in, I'm telling, hey, check, check my street cred. You know, where you from? What neighborhood you from? You know, and within <laughs> a few minutes, I can find out yeah. somebody that they know. And we having that conversation. And then one thing we did at jail at, at um in the Richmond jail was revolutionary. We had parent-teacher conferences out of jail, you know? Mm-hmm. And we had them an hour before their parents came to visit to visit their kids. And they would come in and we would actually talk to them about the educational plan that we, we had put in place for their kids. And we would give them all the documents they need so when that kid leaves us, you take this to the school and say, hey, this is what my kid's working on. This is what they got. This is what they want to do in life. This is their updated IEP, something that they have never had in the last three or four years. And so, and here, and we also say, here's our number. If you got a problem with that school, give us a call. You know, one of the saddest things, but also a good thing for us, we had students that would miss curfew because they know they would come to us for that night. And then that morning they would come to, come to school, get whatever issue they had, whether it's a transcript issue, whether it was a class issue, they would get that straight with us then they go home the next day. Now, to me, that's it's a sad situation that they had to do that, but that's just a sustainable relationship we built with our kids that they know we got their backs, that the parents know that we got their back. Mm-hmm. And so we, re- we really work hard at building those relationships with those parents because in a sense, we are their parents, especially in a jail facility where the parent doesn't have access to their kid every day. So we use those open lines of communications with the parents. Yeah, so... To use a sports analogy, we'll talk hoops because Charles uh, imaginarily is really good at hoops. Um, <laughs> when, when, when somebody has the hot hand, Charles, what you do when somebody got the hot hand, baby? 
you go right back to him. So, Rodney, we're coming right back to you. <laughs> you you won't get this one today, bro. Go ahead. Yo, so uh, yo, we only got you for a cu- we only got you for a couple more minutes, man. We got a lot more questions, and I know these people came to hear from you, the National Teacher of the Year. So, bro, uh, how have you uh, developed professionally uh, to be the teacher for your student, to be the teacher your students need? Um, holding up that mirror. That mirror is the biggest tool for improvement. I tell people that all the time. When I look at where my kids are failing, that's where I'm failing. And so I got to, you know, get some PD or something to make me better to meet their needs. You know, one thing I didn't know was when I moved to the jail was I didn't know the system. I didn't know the criminal justice system at all. And so I made a point to learn about the criminal justice system in Virginia because I want to be, like I said earlier, I want my kids to advocate for themselves. So I want to teach them about the system so that they can become better at the decisions they make. You know, I want you to understand the difference between probation, parole. What is a plea bargain? Is this a good plea bargain to take? Because those are the situations that were hurting them because they were ending up because even though our school, our jail school is good, that's not that's not the case in Virginia, you know, in other facilities. You know, and so because in Virginia, you know, I'm gonna get on this pedestal for a minute. You know, the state of Virginia and our whole, all of our schools and our juvenile detention centers, we have a 71% minority population. There's not one black person in leadership in the state of Virginia when it comes to, you know, state operated programs that runs juvenile detention center group homes. And then when we went to a conference and everyone stood up who's on the planning committee, we're talking like 40 people not one black person on this committee. Mm. And so my whole point is we need more of us making these decisions, you know? And so when I tell my kids, look, these other folks, they're not gonna look out for you. Let's be honest. So I wanna teach you and I wanna give you all the knowledge of the system so that you can advocate for yourself because other people will not do it. That's, that's just the state of Virginia, unfortunately. And so whenever I see my kids suffering something, I look in that mirror and say, what do I have to do to become better? And so I'm going to find that PD. I'm going to go to this conference. I'm going to do whatever it takes, even if I got to come out of my own pocket, because in the end, my job is to be better for my kids. Yo, so you, you, uh, if you're in the audience and you're a teacher, I hope you're hearing this right now because this man is is ta- is telling you how to become the national teacher of the year or the national teacher in your school or wherever you want to be in order to be better than what you are right now. This man is talking to you about the practices that it's going to take in order for you to get there. Reef, what are your thoughts on what he just said? Listen, I, I think it's not just for teachers. I think he's speaking to educators at large, you know, whether they're sitting in a school board, whether they're adjacent to school districts, um, whatever. He's talking about a very particular mindset that centers the uh, effectiveness, um, the pedagogy, the learning of his students. Like he's taking ownership. He's not, he, and he's saying this in the context of all the issues that we already know that exist in, in the context that he educates, but yet he's still saying, I'm going to take responsibility and doing and pushing this as far as I can. I'm going to learn as much as I can. He's, he's saying like, I'm the lead learner in my classroom. So why, why would I not continue um, to do this? And I think if that, if that mindset permeated, our schools, our districts, 
you know, uh, teacher colleges, those policymakers who are adjacent to schools, we'd be, this would be a whole different conversation. This would be a whole different message. Um, so I, I just appreciate what he's saying. And a little bit earlier, he talked about, uh, and Chris has, has used this, uh, this term, that instead of parents being empowered, EM power, they should be in power. And what Rodney talked about, like making sure that the parent they were transparent with what their child had and needed. That's to have. And then when they went back to their sending district, they could say, like, nah, I know exactly what my child needs. I know exactly what this child is doing. That's the IN power um, that we need to uh, look at as as educational leaders. Charles, your take on Rodney's take. I mean, I think he said everything you need to say. I, I just appreciate you coming, man, and uh, and, and just kind of sharing that wisdom and that knowledge, bro. So thank you. I don't want to overspeak what you just said. And uh, I, I just see you as somebody who takes their craft incredibly seriously and, you know, and, and is always striving to be better. So appreciate you for what you do. And if you are listening and you enjoyed the show, share it so other people can kind of get the same message. Yeah. Chris, your take on what Rodney said. Um, I think everything you said tonight is actually what we need to hear. Like I, I, I really Chris, believe. Why are you? Sound, why do you sound so low? Is it? Yeah. What are you doing? Elder Barge today? Because Prince was last week. Um, I mean, do you do you mean low as in like like depressed? I'm depressed because you leading this show. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean low? Like you mean low as in my voice is low? Like, like I sound like low a man? Oh, decibel level. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a man, bro. You know, there's got to be some testosterone on this show. Um, anyway, so uh, Rodney, uh, we need to hear this achievement gospel. Like, we need to hear people who say it can be done. We are going to set the culture. We are going to be trained well enough to do it. We're going to let the kids know it, and they're going to see it. And when they see it, they're going to be able to achieve it. And that's that's what we need to be hearing instead of this awfulizing narrative that we hear about our kids. So you represent everything that I want to see in the world. Like, like if everybody were like you in this, in, in our, our force nat- nationally, I probably wouldn't have a lot to talk about, to be very honest with you about education. So, so I, I actually appreciate you for that. Here's what I really appreciate by what you said tonight. And I didn't pay enough attention to this in the research ahead of time, though, is we really need our kids to know that you're never over. So if you are in jail or if you in juvie, if you get caught up somewhere, it's never over, right? Like you're not done. Society hasn't cast you aside. And to be able to take kids like that in that place and make them successful is a victory. It's the ultimate of all victories, right? So thank you for that. That's how I feel. That's what I heard out of this entire show was we have somebody here who's one of the true, true evangelists of like real education for black kids, basically meaning we can get the job done. We could do it. It's never over. I love that. So thank you, brother. Thank you for coming thank- on the show. Yeah, so uh, we're not done. Um, how just, do you maintain listen, work? Listen, I was just balance. saying my piece, bro. You know, like, okay, go ahead. Go I, ahead. Understood. Go ahead. That New York hostility. No, it's like that's that New York hostility. For no reason. It's a ton no of hostility and aggression coming from me for no reason. And I own it tonight. And yo, we can okay, talk about good. it in the Patreon. It's all good. I'm ready for it. That's good. That's right. Good. Uh, Rodney, uh, how do you maintain work-life balance while still growing as an educator? Um, I've always tried to maintain balance. That's just one thing I've always said. There are times when I just tell people, shut it down, you know? Sometimes we are, we're doing everything. We're stretching ourselves too thin. We got to shut it down, man. We got to take care 
of ourselves. You know, I've been in situations where I didn't take care of myself and myself and almost checked out, but you know, I found that balance, you know, thankfully, you know, my, you know, my wife and I, we don't have any kids. So that also helps with the balance because, you know, when I come home, I'm not running after kids all day, every day. And so you just got to find it, man. It's find your happy places. It sounds kind of, you know, Eastern philosophy type thing, but it really is. You got to find what makes you happy, what keeps you grounded, you know? And the reality is I'm grounded in kids, you know? You know, one one thing about this teacher of the year, man, you on the road, you deal with so much shit all day, every day. <laughs> you know, people with, you know, egomaniacs, people cutting you down, people trying to run you over, just all kinds of stuff. But every time I came back, I always made sure to go to my school and visit my kids. If it ain't no more than just to sit on the pods, play cards with them, you know, after school. You know, just something to keep me grounded because people like to fill your head up. People like to make you think you're something that they want you to be. And so you always got to stay grounded in who you are, you know, and I'm no, I'm, I'm where I am because of that East End community in Richmond, Virginia. I where I am because of those kids in juvenile detention. And so I'm always going to stay grounded and stay working with them because they're going to keep me, they're going to check me, you know, everybody around the, around the country says all this says that, but my community, my kids, they're going to check me. You know, I'm just same old Big Rob. I ain't no title. I ain't this. But that's that shit that keeps you grounded. You know, because when you're on the road and you did, oh man, I can tell y'all some stories. <laughs> but when you deal with the bullshit you deal with, you got to stay grounded in those kids. And once I once I get that, then I see, you know what? It ain't about this person. It ain't about what they said or what they're doing. It's about these kids and making sure they have the right things that they need. And so that's what helps keep me balanced. That's what's up. All right, so fellas, we're about to wrap up. We're going to our final thoughts. Uh, we'll start with you, Reef. You know, first of all, Rodney, thanks again for, you know, coming on. I'll see you Wednesday. Looking forward to your uh, your speech at the NSTOY um, uh, virtual conference this year. We're supposed to be in Minnesota, right? Like, that's where yeah. we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be up in, in Stewart's hometown, but, you know, it'll, it'll be virtual this year. Oh, okay. um, I was about to say, I know y'all wasn't going to I know. He look at he about to close the borders. Like, don't come up in our state. We'll keep y'all. Keep no, y'all. I was about to, like, close them so y'all couldn't get out. Once you get <laughs> All right. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, so it's virtual, but looking forward to, you know, and I've, I've seen you speak uh, many times, and I've always appreciated just how direct you are, how, you know, um, principled you are and solutions oriented like you give practical uh, things that people can do um, I think one of my uh, podcast mates uh, put out something around uh, top athletes going to uh, HBCUs and what we need is more of the top teachers folks who who want to be top teachers attending uh, HBCUs you know and making sure that they're getting grounded in the pedagogy that sets their children um, up for success. Uh, that's what's uh, that's what's needed. And you just reinforce that. The other big piece that I'm taking from you is a reminder just around parents. You know, when I p hear people talk about, oh, parents wouldn't come. Like I never experienced that in 26 years. Parents were always showing up, you know, some grades, 100 percent of them showing up. And so I think it really is a matter of they know how you view them, even if they had negative experiences. If you're 
kids in solidarity with their child's success, then they're going to come and 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 be with you. And they're going to defend their children as they should if you're not. So, you know, the responsibility is on us as as educators. That's what's up, Charles. Uh, nah, man, like I, I just basically gave it the last time that I spoke, man. Rodney, thank you so much for being here. Uh, for folks uh, that are out there, I think Patreon is going to be quite interesting tonight. And uh, you might want to join that. Uh, but Rodney, man, it's, it's, you've been great. Uh, thank you, everybody that tuned in and, and was a part of the conversation. Yeah, Chris. Uh, so Rodney, listen, I'm real interested in hearing what you got to say next. Um, you've had this time now. So and in some ways, because you held this title and you you were on the grind with this title, you had to be a certain person. I would imagine. I don't know anything about it, really, yeah. honestly, but I would imagine you had to yeah. live some kind of life. I feel like right now is where the, where the real magic starts, yeah. because now you've learned some things. You've had some free time, but you also have some stuff to say. And I imagine that there's some stories I want to hear. And I think everybody else uh, wants to hear also. <laughs> so everybody listening to this and watching this, number one, First of all, you should hook up with Rodney on Twitter and make sure that you're following him and watching and supporting and, and helping the platform build because I'm I'm sure there's more stories that we win and lose on information and I'm sure there's some stories here to learn learn from and be told. So um, I'm waiting for that. Right, uh, I saw that you uh, you had a little message for the the, the president about you know what we should go to <laughs> next and and uh man i just think that uh it's gonna be exciting to watch what you do next and hear what you say next but thank you for what you've done so far and uh uh giving us hope and and belief you in sure. our own kids or whatnot and happy trails on the rest of it bro but stay in touch don't leave don't go thank nowhere you. uh love to have you on my show yeah we can work it out we work it out we're going to see. There you go. All right. That's all I got to say, man. Thank you very much. And I'm sure people watching you are better for having seen this, man. And it's nuts. All right. So, um, <laughs> Rodney, what are your final thoughts? <laughs> um, I'm just happy, man. The time, I mean, the year is over with. So it's like, you know, you're saying I can kind of be a little bit more of myself because the title comes with, you know, a certain political aspect. And so you have to play the role because honestly, one thing I, I will never do is I will never say anything as teacher of the year that took opportunities away from other teachers to grow and be better. And so once, you know, I officially ended, I feel like, okay, now I'm free to talk and say some of the things that I've been wanting to say all year. And so now as I move on to my next path, you know, I, I really don't know just yet. You know, I'm kind of, you know, working on some things, talking to some people. But the reality is, I think my biggest moment I had during this teacher of the year was last year in Denver. We were at Education Commission of the States, you know, and that's all the top policymakers and, you know, and education policymakers, state chiefs, all those in the country were at the conference. And I was in that room and I saw one brother. Mm. One brother. And, you know, I, my whole phrase is all skin folk ain't kin folk. Mm. So, and <laughs> that's that, right <laughs> that was an eye-opening experience for me because I've always said I love being in the classroom love working with my kids that's the most powerful thing I can do but until we get more of us in those rooms making those decisions 
and people that don't believe the typical narrative about black kids or brown kids, then the situation is not going to change. So as I look forward to this next journey, I'm definitely going to get involved in, you know, making some policy that benefits all kids, not just the typical kids that have always benefited from America, American education. They're going to benefit from everybody as I, as I move on. So I just want to thank you all for this opportunity tonight. It's been a long time coming. I know, you know, my schedule this year, we tried to schedule it three, four different times. And but Sunday night is my travel night. That's for real. Sunday night was usually the night when I was trying to travel back home or somewhere else. So it never worked out. But, I, you know, thanks to COVID, we all at home right now. So, you know, it's just a moment. It's everything worked out. And like I said, I'll come back anytime y'all need me. Appreciate that. That's what's up, bro. All right, so if you're in the audience and you're still rocking with us, uh, we're about to close out soon. But if you could like this, uh, make an angry face, a heart, uh, a thumbs up, uh, a wow, whatever it is you felt about this show, if you could give it to us now, that would be great. Uh, Rodney's Twitter is at Rod Robinson RVA. If you want to follow him, fellas, you want to plug in y'all's Twitters? No. You can find me on Twitter at Citizen Stewart, the Van Glorious. Don't worry about the rest of these dudes. They bums. Just go go look up mine and sign <laughs> on. That's all. That's it. Yeah. Hey, hey. <laughs> don't look them up. They don't talk about nothing. It's not real. It's not real. It's, probably, it's not real. It's probably too real. All right. So, so but I do want to I do want to close the close the shot on, on something serious. So lately we've been seeing um a couple of uh, of of, of, char- of, of uh, charter school students, uh, alumni from charter school students from uh, from networks. Now, I don't want to name the networks or whatever, but here's what I do want to say: uh, If a kid was at a zero tolerance charter school and they are experiencing trauma based off of the experience that they had at those schools, when someone reaches out to the administration that was there. During that time that the kids experienced those traumas, you can't say no to a show. You can't say no to a show. You got to come on to the show. You got to come to the show. You got to talk about the things that you were doing when you when they were at your school. And you got to talk about how you progressed from there to now. We got to see growth. If not, then we're going to just believe the narratives that, that are being put out, that the one-sided narratives. So if they call you out, you got to come on the show. That's like That's the biggest subtweet I've ever heard verbally. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the biggest <laughs> verbal subtweet ever. <laughs> if there's a charter school, or say just 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 saying somewhere that had traumatized children, just saying figuratively possible, maybe kind of, um, and you the leader of that school, kind of, and you kind of apologized for it, but you didn't like the response to your apology, so you took it down. You got to come on the show. I'm just saying, maybe. Maybe, See, I didn't say maybe. all that. You you went, yo, the way I broad stroked it, it could have been maybe. anybody, it could have been Kemp, could have been whatever. But you the way God. you just did what you just did, you did what you did. <laughs> I'm just helping you, bro. I'm just helping you out. I'm trying to get the message across. You try to get I didn't need your help for that. Rodney, anyway, brother, thank you. Thank, thank you, you, brother. What a child. Rodney, thank you. A hundred times over. Thank you, so. <laughs> yeah, that's what's up. All right, guys, all right. thank you for tuning in. Uh, we'll check you next week. Peace. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum. Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.